Amen. Good morning, church. What a privilege it is for me to stand here and bring the word to you. Our God is a faithful God. The book of James says that every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of light, with whom there is no shadow or variation due to change. And so we come now to his word, asking humbly that he would light our path and our feet and illumine our hearts. Last week, we started to dive into the book of 1 John in earnest. And we saw that John, as an apostle, was an eyewitness to Jesus Christ, his ministry, his resurrection and ascension. And that as an apostle, he was a messenger of God's good news. He was entrusted with the hope of the gospel to share with the world. Today, we're looking at 1 John chapter 1, verses 5 to 10. If you would, turn in your Bible with me to 1 John chapter 1, verses 5 to 10. And we'll, we will see that now today, John gets to that message that was entrusted to him. In fact, right off the bat, you can allow your eyes to go down to verse 5. You will see that's how he starts. This is the message. Let me cut right to the chase. This is the message we have heard from him and declare to you that God is light and in him there is no darkness at all. What John says is beautiful and profound, but it is also very brief. This message that he says he was entrusted with is only 10 words in the original Greek. And so we know that it is a summary. It has the entirety of the gospel in mind, but it's very much a summary of Christ's life and work and teaching. And he goes on in the next four verses after that to say that in light of that gospel summary, pun very much intended, the people of God should look and behave certain ways. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son, Colossians 1.13. He's writing to Christians who have already heard and responded to the gospel. They have experienced the grace of God. The light has shone on their darkened hearts. And he's writing to these churches to help to motivate them to continue in the faith, to continue experiencing the light and life of fellowship with the holy God, the progressive sanctification that he performs in us. He kind of bounces back and forth and uses a lot of repetition in those next four verses. But I think the gist of what he's wanting to teach is that believers should have a posture of humility. That there should be a correspondence between the faith that we profess and the lives that we lead. He teaches that the church should be a community where we don't deny our indwelling sin, but we recognize it and acknowledge it and agree with God's word on it, on our spiritual poverty. And through confession, receive mercy and protection and ministry from our Savior. And so my aim this morning is to inspire the saints at Bull Street to walk in the light 
by living lives that align with our professed faith, where we are transparent about our ongoing struggles with indwelling sin, and where we are quick to confess the ways we need the Savior to help us. So at first, I want to look at verse five, just to give you kind of an outline of where we're going. I wanna consider the character of God in this brief summary that, that John gives of the message that was entrusted to him. And then I wanna look at four characteristics of those who are walking in the light. Now, if you would stand with me out of reverence for the reading of our sermon text. This is 1 John chapter 1, verses 5 to 10. Hear the word of the Lord. This is the message we have heard from him and proclaim to you, that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. If we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus his son cleanses us from all sin. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. Father, we humble ourselves before you and ask that your Holy Spirit would illumine our hearts and minds Help us to not move toward the darkness, whether out of distraction or familiarity with these verses or simply unbelief in our hearts. Father, would your light shine on the darkness of our hearts. We confess that, that we have experienced your light, but we still have indwelling sin and we need your help to, to kill that sin. Would you help us even now in the next few minutes to do that by hearing the preaching of your word? And I ask this in the name of Jesus, the light of the world. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. This is the message we have heard from him and proclaim to you that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. God is light light. He is light. No one taught God how to be holy. God is not more holy today than he was yesterday. He is not becoming more holy day by day. He is light. Light and darkness are used throughout scripture to speak of moral goodness and badness. To say that God is light and that there is no darkness in him at all is to say that he is utterly holy. He is holy to the utmost. He is holy, holy, holy. He is the holiest. The doctrine of God's simplicity teaches us that 
God is his attributes. God is love. He is just. He is light. When God is displaying his loving kindness, his forbearance, his patience, his mercy, that is a holy love. When God is pouring out his wrath on sinners, in, on sin, in justice, he is no less loving when he is doing that. He is holy, loving, just God. We are only holy inasmuch as we are like God. Our holiness must be measured against something. God is holy. He is light. His holiness emanates from himself. This is where the gospel must start. Not just that we were created by some all-powerful divine being, but that that creator is the holy God. This is the problem with sin, is that it is rebellion against the holy God. When Moses was shown the glory of the Lord in Exodus 34, the way that the Lord described himself, it says in Exodus 34, verse 6 and 7, the Lord passed before him and proclaimed, the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. That seems like a paradox to us at first. But praise the Lord, through redemptive history, we see that in Jesus, there is no paradox there. God is the holy God who cannot be in the presence of sin, but has punished sin in the person of Jesus so that sinful people can be made right with him. God is light and in him is no darkness at all. That phrase alone isn't enough for us to come to saving faith. It's a summary. There's a reason why the Lord didn't just give us that phrase. He gave us the whole Bible so that we can understand that God is holy, he is light, but it is his holiness and his goodness that allow us to trust him when he says that he has punished our sin once and for all in the person of Jesus, we as sinful people can come before him with confidence through faith and receive that grace. we should feel a sense of awe as believers who have had our sins dealt with. We should have a sense of awe at the holiness of God. God is holy, but in his holiness, he does not just move away from sin, he actually moves toward sin and deals with it as the holy God. John 3 says, obviously, John 3.16 is one of the most famous verses in the world. But John 3.18 to 21 says, Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already 
because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. And this is the judgment. The light has come into the world and people loved darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his works should be exposed. But whoever does what is true comes to the light so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. Christians, you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession. You have been called out of darkness into his marvelous light. Those who have been called out of darkness no longer love the darkness. And we should literally look different because the light has shone on us. And so, in light of that statement that John gives, the message we have heard from him, that God is light and in him there is no darkness at all, let's consider these, what I see are four characteristics of those who walk in the light. First is our lives match our profession. Our lives match our professed faith. Our walk backs up our talk. Look at verse 6. If we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. God is who he says he is. And for us to be like him, our aim should be that our lives and behavior match the faith that we profess. If one claims to follow Christ, you should actually be able to tell that that person is following Jesus, like going the direction that Jesus is going. John contrasts saying we have fellowship with walking in darkness. And I think it's helpful for us to recognize walking in darkness is not just a stumble. It's not just messing up one time. This is speaking to a pattern of ongoing sin. It's not just a snapshot or a single scene, but when you back up and look at the movie of your life, are you following Jesus? Those who say they have fellowship with God should practice the truth. We talk of doctors or lawyers practicing medicine or practicing law. It's what they do. Christians practice the truth because the truth is in us. Do you profess Christ? Has the holy God dealt with your sins in the person of Jesus? If so, how has he changed your heart? And how has your changed heart led to changed behavior? Scripture texts like this should not make us uneasy or cause us to doubt our faith. Rather, they are given for us to be encouraged and to praise the Lord for the work that he has done. But I leave you with that question for your own reflection. How 
Has the Lord shown his light on your heart that used to be in darkness? He goes on to to give us another mark of of what this looks like in believers in verse 7. It's that our community is centered on Christ's person and work. Characteristic number two is that our community is centered on Christ's person and work. Look at verse 7. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. So this is a little bit different from where you might expect John is going because in the last verse he said that some people might say they have fellowship but walk in darkness. That's lying and not practicing the truth. He's contrasting it by saying that if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. And the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. That word fellowship, if you draw your eyes back up a little bit before our passage this morning, you see that John said, and we looked at this last week in 1 verse 3, that that which we have seen and heard we proclaim also to you so that you may have fellowship with us and indeed our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. When the Lord shines his light on people who live in darkness in a salvific way, they are instantly part of a community. They are in relationship with the triune God and they are a part of a people who have been transferred from the domain of darkness into the kingdom of his son. The Lord shining his light on him is not just about me and Jesus. When we live in the light and walk in the light with other brothers and sisters, it's a way that we are able to demonstrate that we are walking in the light. We are able to see in one another the ways that we have been changed. We can look at our lives and say, there is a brother, there is a sister who is walking in the light. This passage is is dealing with our indwelling sin that, that remains in us even after our salvation. And it could be There's two potential pitfalls. We can either treat our sin with legalism on the one hand or laziness on the other. Both will kill our Christian fellowship. The pursuit of holiness is what truly unites believers. And the way that we pursue holiness is looking to the person and work of Jesus Christ. We have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. Don't misread this. Our holy behavior is not what earns our cleansing. That is not what the text says. What does it say? Walking in the light shows the world that we have been cleansed. 
If we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. The blood of Jesus is efficacious even today. It is not just something that happened on Golgotha 2,000 years ago. It is working today. It is fundamentally different from the blood of bulls and goats that the old sacrificial system foreshadowed. Listen to what Hebrews 9 says, Hebrews 9 verses 11 to 14. But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is not of creation, he entered once for all into the holy places, not by the means of blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer sanctify for the purification of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God? The blood of Jesus cleanses us from all sin. John is speaking comprehensively. The blood of goats and bulls ceremonially sanctified, set apart the Israelites under the old covenant. But we have been transformed in our hearts by the sprinkling of Jesus' blood. Our hearts have been changed. Jesus taught that out of the mouth, the heart speaks. And so the rest of this passage deals with our words. The third characteristic of those who are walking in the light is that we speak the truth regarding our sin. We speak the truth regarding our sin. Now, verses 8 and verses 10 are very similar. They're, they're almost identical with a couple tweaks. So I'm going to take both of them first, and then we will look at verse 9. Verse 8 says, If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. Verse 10 is almost, almost identical. It says, if we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. Both of these verses contrast with verse 6 where what was said was we have fellowship with God, but, but we were walking in darkness. Here, the words that are being said are not even true. They don't even have the potential to be true. In verse 8, it says, if we say we have no sin. In verse 10, it says, if we say we have not sinned. One of those is the perfect tense. One of those is speaking more generally. I don't know if we should read too much into that difference, but we do recognize that we are sinners both by nature and by choice. 
And to deny either one of those is not agreeing with what the Word of God has said. We have a sin nature and we sin in specific ways. We have sin and we have sinned. The ways that those two verses are different, I think we should camp out at for just a little bit. That next part of the phrase, it says, if we, have, if we say we have no sin, in verse 8, we deceive ourselves. We deceive ourselves. Sin is blinding. For the Christian, this should be very sobering. And it should stop us in our tracks and recognize we need to be evaluating our own hearts because there could be sin that we're entrapped in and might not even realize it because sin is blinding. Martin Lloyd-Jones says, you will never make yourself feel that you are a sinner because there is a mechanism in you as a result of sin that will always be defending you against every accusation. We're all very good, on very good terms with ourselves. And we can always put up a good case for ourselves. Even if we try to make ourselves feel that we are sinners, we will never do it. There's only one way to know that we are sinners, and that is to have some dim, glimmering conception of God. Church, it is the grace of God for us to even know the difference between right and wrong. It is God's grace for us to be made aware of our own sin. And again, I don't want us to fall into either trap of laziness or legalism. I'm not wanting us to heap up feelings of guilt and shame but I want us to recognize that sin is blinding. And we have a capacity to sometimes think that our greatest problems are all outside of us. When in reality, conflict in relationships, difficult physical circumstances, those are real struggles. But those things in, in and of themselves as believers cannot affect our relationship with the Lord. But those things can reveal sin in our hearts that does affect our relationship with the Lord. Paul David Tripp is a Christian counselor and author. And he tells a story of sitting down with a couple for marriage counseling in their first session and he just wanted to ask an open-ended question to get things started. And he said, what would you say is the biggest problem in your marriage? And as soon as those words left his mouth, each spouse said the name of the other. We can be like that sometimes. Have you ever seen someone who's worked up and someone asks something about, why are you so angry? And they shout, I'm not angry. <laughs> Have you ever shouted, I'm not angry? Just me. 
Saints who are walking in the light recognize that sin is blinding. And we are humble about that and we agree with what the word of God says about sin. Verse 10 says, if we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. The truth not being in us, his word not being in us, calling God a liar. That should be so sobering to disciples of Jesus. We don't want to be there. It's the grace of God to know the difference between right and wrong. It's the grace of God to have a conscience that is sensitive to what the word of God has said. It's the grace of God to be able to come and confess our sins before him. In contrast to to that negative phrasing that he's used in verses eight and 10, if we say these things that are not true, that's not good. Let me contrast that now in verse nine. This is the fourth characteristic of those who walk in the light. We confess and receive the ongoing mercy of our Savior. Our words speak the truth of our, about our sin. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Augustine says, the confession of evil works is the first beginning of good works. Last week in our passage, we talked about the basics, the fundamentals, how God reveals himself through the written word, how the incarnate Christ is God and man, how it's so important to get those truths right. We need to believe in God as he has revealed himself to us. Confession is so foundational, it's the basics, it's the first part of our responsibility in our conversion. God calls his people, and what does Jesus say in Mark 1? The first first thing is repent and believe. Confession is that first part of repentance. So it makes sense that our indwelling sin would want to go back to those basics and and take it back. The Christian is quick to examine themselves and, and know that there is forgiveness that awaits. There is mercy from our Savior that awaits. We bring ourselves under his gaze and ask him to shine his light on the darkness of our hearts. Another book of the Bible the Apostle John wrote is the book of Revelation. And in chapter one, he has this vision of the Son of Man. And it's a lot of language that parallels to the book of Daniel, where Daniel also saw this this vision of the Son of Man. And there's some confusing language if you take it all literally, but it's not meant to be literal. It's metaphorical and it's speaking of these glorious truths about our Savior. And one of the descriptors of Jesus is that he has eyes like flaming fire. He has eyes like flaming fire. And one of the sobering realities of the book of Revelation is that for those who are not in Christ, it should be alarming 
to be seen by the God who has eyes of fire should cause you who are dead in your sin to, to wake up and recognize that there is, there is a God who has eyes of flaming fire. Don't mess around with your sin. He is the holy God. And as the holy God, he punishes sin. But for those who are in Christ, the book of Revelation is a great comfort because the eyes of fire are in our Savior, the one who has borne the wrath for us. And so those flames do not hurt us, but they burn away the indwelling sin in us. To be seen by Jesus, whose eyes are flaming fire, is to have our indwelling sin burned away. And what's left is we are left looking more like our Savior. So the Christian runs to the Son of Man whose eyes are flaming fire. And we say, Jesus, look at us. Search me, O God. See if there is any wayward way in me. Show me, because I want to agree with you about what you have said about sin. This confession will necessarily lead to confessing specific, definite sins. Just confessing our sin nature could be a way to assuage our guilt. But bringing concrete sins before our Savior allows us to be healed by him in definite ways. Now, this doesn't always mean that we're going to be confessing behavior specifically. We can sin in the heart and in the mind, but we must confess specifically, Lord, I have been greedy. I have wanted things that you have not said are good for me. I have longed for the praise of man. I have demonstrated a fear of man rather than a fear of you. I have not been obedient to the Holy Spirit's prompting to share your good news with the lost. We should confess specific sins and have a godly sorrow over them. This doesn't mean that we leverage our emotions again to try to earn God's approval. It can be a discipline, an act of the will first that leads to emotions. Indeed, it should stem from us agreeing with God's word that leads us to have broken hearts over our sins. But the comfort, the reason why we do this is that if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. God is light. In him there is no darkness at all. Jackie Hill Perry wrote a helpful book called uh, Holier Than Thou. Is that the name of it? I'm looking at people who I've borrowed that copy from. Uh, Holier Than Thou. And that it gets to this idea that the holiness of God and 
the kindness of God in the gospel. Again, God is God. Is God. He is all of those things. And so we don't confess coming to him hoping that he will be kind to us. We come in confidence knowing that he is fundamentally not like people who might disappoint. We confess knowing that he has no darkness in him. And we can trust his word that he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins. We don't sin that grace may abound, but when we sin and when we have our sin exposed to us by his grace through his word, we go straight to him knowing that we will receive mercy. When we recognize ourselves as sinners, that is when we see Jesus as the Savior most clearly. The cross of Calvary did not come from some sort of reluctance from God to forgive sin. The cross of Christ happened out of God's desire to forgive sin. A holy God moves towards sin and deals with it. And for the Christian, our sins have been dealt with in the person of Jesus. So we confess our sin and we receive the ongoing mercy of our Savior. A.W. Tozer writes, Someone who, in spite of his past sins, honestly wants to become reconciled to God may cautiously inquire, if I come to God, how will he act toward me? What kind of disposition has he? What will I find him to be like? The answer is that we will find him to be exactly like Jesus. He who has seen me, Jesus said, has seen the Father. Christ walked with men on earth so that he might show them what God is like and make known the true nature of God to a race that had wrong ideas about him. This was only one of the things he did while here in the flesh, but this he did with beautiful perfection. From him we learn how God acts toward people. The hypocritical, the basically insincere, will find him cold and aloof as they once found Jesus. But the penitent will find him merciful. The self-condemned will find him generous and kind. To the frightened, he is friendly. To the poor in spirit, he is forgiving. To the ignorant, considerate. To the weak, gentle. And to the stranger, hospitable. The greatness of God rouses fear within us, but his goodness encourages us not to be afraid of him. To fear and not be afraid, that is the paradox of faith. God is light. In him there is no darkness at all. And when we walk in the light, we confess and receive the ongoing mercy of our Savior who perfectly embodies that light and that lack of darkness. Where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. During Jesus' earthly ministry, there was a woman who came 
while Jesus was at a Pharisee's house having a meal. And while they were around the table, this woman brought an alabaster flask of ointment. It was very valuable. And she stood behind Jesus and weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair and she kissed his feet and anointed them with, with the ointment. The Pharisees were offended by that. They said, if this man were a prophet, he would know what kind of a woman this is who's touching him. He tells a parable then, uses it as a teaching moment, where he gives an example of a moneylender who canceled two debts. Both debts were significant, but one was almost incalculably significant. And he, Jesus asked Peter, he said, of those two, two men who had their debts canceled, which one loves the master more? Simon Peter answered, the one I suppose for whom he canceled the larger debt. Jesus said to him, you have judged rightly. He turned to the woman and said to Peter, do you see this woman? I entered your house and you gave me no water for my feet but she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss, but from the time I came in, she has not ceased to kiss my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she has anointed my feet with ointment. Therefore, I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven. Jesus was a prophet. He did know what kind of woman she was. But he said to her, your sins are forgiven. Church, may we be a people who come to Jesus and are able to metaphorically wet his feet with our tears. Not to earn forgiveness, but out of a love for our Savior who has taken our sins upon himself, who has offered us forgiveness. Let's be a people who are quick to speak about our struggles with our indwelling sin, with one another. Let's talk about these things with one another. Of all people, we should know the ways that we are struggling to follow our Savior. We're all trying to follow him as faithfully as we can together. Do you have brothers and sisters in your life who know your weaknesses in your flesh? Do you have brothers and sisters in this room who know the ways you are struggling with sin? Let's discipline ourselves to share those weights with one another. Let's be prepared to receive confessions from one another. Let's ask one another, 
How are you struggling in your walk with the Lord? It's okay. It's okay to ask that. That's not inappropriate for those who are walking in the light together. But when you ask that, be prepared for the answer. Be quiet. Listen. Point to Jesus. Pray for that brother or sister. The currents of God's grace have removed us from the domain of darkness. We are now in the kingdom of the Son of God, the light of the world. But our indwelling sin is like that salmon trying to swim back upstream and get back to the birthplace. But we are children of light, walk as children of light. For the fruit of light is found in all that is good and right and true. And try to discern what is pleasing to the Lord. Take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness, but instead expose them. For it is shameful even to speak of the things they do in secret. But when anything is exposed by the light, it becomes visible. For anything that becomes visible is light. Therefore it says, awake, O sleeper, arise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. Let's pray. Father, we praise you that you are righteous and you love righteousness. You are light and in you there is no darkness. We ask now, would Christ shine on us? The Son of Man who has eyes like flaming fire, would you shine on us? Search us, reveal to us, illumine to our eyes the ways in which we may be blinded by our sin. Thank you, Lord, for your providence in giving us this passage the week before we take communion. Help us to take communion next week more faithfully than we have in a long time by applying what we've heard today to confess our sins with one another over this next week. May we be more honest about our struggles with sin. May we not make excuses. Father, that has been a lie from the enemy from the beginning, that we would be able to make excuses for our sin. Help us to not be lazy about our sin and help us to not be legalistic. But give us a love for, a sa- for our Savior and help us to run toward him, finding mercy and grace at his feet by his blood. And it's in his name that I ask all of this. Amen.